All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together, let's bow our heads, go to the Lord in prayer, and express our need and desire to have our eyes open to understand his word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father, the psalmist said that your word is a light into our life. It's a lamp into our path. We we see as things are. We see reality as it is because of your word. Elsewhere, the psalmist said, it's in thy light that we see light. That is, as we study your word, it illuminates our thinking so that we are able then to come to understand other things. We understand truth, truth as an absolute, truth as that which conforms to your revelation, that which conforms to your thinking. And, Father, sometimes this is seems rather simple, other times it's extremely profound, and we have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. Today, as we begin to study these opening verses in Ephesians 1, there's some pretty heavy thoughts here, some significant words that often become uh, stumbling blocks for people, difficult to get their mental fingers around. And, Father, as we study, we pray that we might be able to, to think clearly about these things and look at what your word says and how you have used these terms in such a way as to uh, just open our minds to the glories of what is ours, the riches we have in Christ, your destiny for us as believers in Jesus Christ, as members of the body of Christ, to serve you not just in this life during this age, but the ramifications for eternity. Expand our understanding, Lord, that we may come to a much greater understanding of who we are and how you have uh, called us and how you're shaping us for that role in eternity. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I think every one of us comes to a point in life where we begin to ask some some questions to one degree or another, and depending on intellectual background capabilities and education, we explore these uh, maybe to a simple degree, maybe to an advanced degree. For some people, it just sort of creates um, landmines in their brain, so they prefer to think about other things. But... We have to come to grips with this because it's definitely part of the Word of God and has been uh, revealed to us. Basic questions that we often ask, 
something along these lines. Am I really able to make my own decisions about life? Do I really have free will? Do I really have the ability to decide what I'm doing in life? Or is there some controlling power that has already determined who I am and what I will do? We ask, is there some sort of fate or power in the universe that controls my will? Or is there genuine choice and genuine freedom? If we look out around the culture in which we live, it's not too different from the culture in other parts of the world in terms of the fact that its starting point is not the Word of God, its starting point is not a creator God of the universe who has created everything down to the most minute uh, minute subject that we can think about, but also in terms of all of the uh, supra-organizations that we can think of, not only to the subatomic particles, but also uh, to the galaxies. And when we probe the thinking of God and the knowledge of God, we realize that there is so much that goes on that inter- interacts and interconnects, whether we're talking about uh, galaxies in the universe or we're talking about what goes on within the structure of a molecule or uh, atoms and how all of that interconnects with all of God's creation. It goes far beyond anything that we can comprehend. We can comprehend some truth, but we cannot comprehend it exhaustively. Ultimately, that comes down to understanding the knowledge of God, what we refer to as God's omniscience, that God knows everything. And that is something that is at the very heart of what we are about to study because this relates to if God knows everything, then does that mean that everything is foreordained or predetermined so that nothing can change what will be? And this opens up within the arena of philosophy and the arena of thought, whole worlds of controversy and discussion that go far beyond anything that we're going to cover on a Sunday morning here in in the coming weeks. I remember when I was at uh, the University of St. Thomas here in Houston working on a uh, master's degree in philosophy, I took a whole course called Free Will and Determinism and studying all of the different things and theories and ideas and models that have been set forth by philosophers throughout the ages. If you've just grown up in our culture, you know that there are uh, people out there that if you say something about whatever's gone on in your life, maybe it's something tragic, maybe it's something good, and their response has something to do, well, that's just the way the universe organizes things. And so they hold in some sense to sort of an impersonal uh, determinism that we really don't shape the way things are in our life. They are controlled by some impersonal power, if there are uh, there are Christians who hold to forms of determinism, 
where God is always in control. And even if you are on the, shall we say, the soft end of the spectrum, soft determinism, or you may not hold to uh, any sense where God's God it doesn't allow our our choice, our free choice, our determinism, our um, free choice, our volition, then you're also guilty, I think, of making statements when certain situations occur and you just sort of dismiss it by saying, well, that's God's will. We've all done that. We've blamed God for something wrong or bad that happened because of someone's choice. God has permissive will. He allows human beings to make bad choices, evil choices, sinful choices, and they have consequences. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden. Adam made the determinative choice. Eve was the first one, but she wasn't the head. He was the head, and his choice was determinative in that it plunged all of his descendants into the corruption of sin. Now, to what degree does that affect our ability to make decisions? Because we have a sin nature and we are corrupt, so that affects our thinking, it affects our will. All of these are pretty profound statements that if you get into them, then pretty soon you think that you're just caught in some sort of intellectual quicksand. And for a lot of people, that's just way beyond their pay grade, so they're not going to think too much about that. But the scriptures make these things pretty clear. What happens is uh, theologians come along and obfuscate them. They make them difficult to understand, and that's part of what happened in the history of Christianity. And we get into this at the very beginning of our, of our lesson today as we open up into Ephesians chapter 1. And so... As I have pointed out in the previous lessons, let me get back there, we see this threefold division in the opening um, opening eulogy or praise of God, praise for the Father in verses 3 through 6, praise for the Son in verses 7 through 12, and praise for the Holy Spirit in verses 13 through 14. Each of these relates ultimately to the plan of God and how God brings about his plan. Now, as soon as we talk about God bringing about his plan, we introduce another attribute of God that goes along with his omniscience, and that is his sovereignty, his rulership over his creation. Now, the question that then comes up is, to what degree does God rule, and how is he able to bring about what he intends, what he has prophesied, what he claims will happen in the future without somehow forcing the wills of individuals and how you understand the relationship of his sovereignty to his omniscience is also critical for understanding what is what is going on in, in this whole debate and in these whole issues. On the one hand, you have those who are more deterministic and for them, sovereignty takes place, takes priority over his omniscience. 
Now, what happens, I'm going to say a lot of these things over and over again because they're deep, they're profound, and it's too early in the morning for some of you. You'll never have enough coffee to really get become alert on all of this. But what that means is that God can't... God, God determines in his sovereignty what will happen, and then he knows what will happen. So that his sovereignty and his plan take priority over his knowledge. And what these deterministic theologians will say is that God cannot know something unless he has already determined it. So in some sense, that limits the omniscience of God. And you have two different types of theologians who talk about that. One are the Calvinists, that's the term we usually use, is categorizing them as followers of uh, John Calvin. The other group has come about is the open theist. Now that's a new uh, off out of bounds theology that came up by the late uh, late 90s and early 2000s that that for God to predict that something will happen, he either is determining it or somehow he is open to it changing. And so it's called open theism, and that's pretty much been shut down by uh, orthodox, biblically-based theologians. But it's interesting that both of them end up accepting the same premise, and that is that God does only knows what he has determined uh, will take place. And so the real question is, is there contingency, real contingency, that is things that are contingent upon people making making free will choices that change things? And I believe that that is so. And I believe a sovereign God who is able to bring about that which he has planned without negating human choice is a greater sovereignty and a greater God than a God who predetermines what exactly will happen. That's the only thing that he knows will happen, and so he causes that to be brought about. That is a limited view of both the omniscience of God and his sovereignty. But usually what you'll hear, and I've had friends challenge me on this, and they'll say, well, don't you believe that ultimately God is in control? Sure. But a God that can, can achieve his means, even when his creatures make bad decisions, is a greater God than a God who can bring about his, his plan by controlling every decision of every creature. And that's ultimately what what you end up with. Now, when we get to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it reads like, uh, verse 3 reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then we get a key phrase, in the heavenly places. Now, this is crucial for understanding what is about to happen. Because what runs through Ephesians is this, is a development of this concept of what it means to be in Christ. And in Christ means that we have been raised with him, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, that we have 
uh, we have been raised uh, up together with him and that we have been seated together with him in the heavenly places. And where we're going to go with this and what Paul is, is, is opening our eyes to here is that we have this remarkable new identity. No believer in God, no Old Testament saint has ever had the kind of privileges and position that we have. Our position, the legal position God has given us, is one that sits, seats us at his right hand in Christ. And everything is related to this important phrase of being in Christ. For that is how verse 3 ends, that we've been blessed in the heavenly places in Christ. Then in verse 4 we read, just as he chose us, what? In him before the foundation of the world, that we should be uh, holy and without blame before him, that would be God the Father in love, because he, so it's a causal idea there, because he predestined us. Now that's another word we're going to have to pay a lot of attention to. Predestined us to adoption as sons. And that whole teaching on adoption is another huge topic that relates to our identity. We have been brought into the royal family of God in a way unique from any other believer in history. And what does that entail? So we've been predestined to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself accordingly uh, for the good pleasure, according to the good pleasure of his will. So what I want to point out here just a little bit in terms of getting our thinking going on this section is what we find as we look at Ephesians 1.4. The way it is translated, it is, as I have it in the top, is just as he chose us in him. Now, that's the phraseology in, in the Greek. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, the way many read this And the way Calvinists read this is subtle. They read it as if it says he chose us to be in him. Now, what that implies is that God is individually selecting people to be in Christ. But there's no to be verb there. It's us in him, us in him. That's a corporate context, us in him. So it should be translated more along the lines of what I put at the bottom. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us who are in him. Us in him is a group of people. Us in him. He chose this group that are in Christ for a purpose, He's not choosing them to be in Christ. He is choosing those who are in Christ for a purpose. And it's not talking about how they got into Christ. It is talking about a destiny that is theirs and a purpose that is theirs after they are placed in Christ. Now, as we take a look at this, and we're looking at 
basically three or four key words that if you don't understand them properly, if we don't have a good sense of what these words mean, it's easy to read these passages with this sort of deterministic mindset because we've heard that words such as predestination have to do with being chosen for salvation. But that's not what the word means, and we have to look at how the word is used to determine uh, what it means. Another word that we see here uh, is the word chose. What does that mean? Does that have this sort of elective concept like we think about an election where we're choosing someone to serve in office from a group of people so that when that is applied ideologically, we are selecting someone for salvation from a group of people. But this same word is used of Christ. Now think about that. Was Christ chosen from a group of people, from a group of optional candidates? No, there was only one candidate. He called chosen. It's translated that way, but as we shall see, the concept of this word is not always that idea of selection, but often it has the a qualitative sense where we would translate it choice or excellent. It is talking about the quality of who he is. There's another sense in which this word is used that I think fits the verbal use here as opposed to the noun use, which would talk about Christ as the choice one, and we're choice because we're in him. But he chose us, this is a verb, and that has more the idea of being a point, appointed to a task or commissioned to a task. And it's used that way numerous times and even translated that way numerous times in Scripture, but suddenly there are those who, because they come to the text with a uh, presupposition of determinism, translate it in a unique way when it relates to salvation. And this, of course, brings out various uh, various problems. So we have in verse 4 the use of the word uh, uh, predestination that, or in verse 5, rather, adoption, son, uh, that we are predest- he has predestined us to adoption as son. So we have to understand what predestination means, and ultimately what that means is just choosing a, an end result, a destiny, uh, what that destiny will be, not in terms of eternal salvation, but in terms of for those who are in Christ, God has a special plan and destiny for them, and we are to, uh, we are to grow and mature as believers by understanding what that destiny is. So he has appointed us for that destiny. And that destiny relates to our spiritual growth, and that relates to being holy and blameless uh, before him. So we need to get into all of these things, but we have to understand these, these three key words in order to catch what is really being said here. The first word, as I pointed out, is this word to choose, that uh, he chose us. The second word is the word predestination. And the third word is a word that is not used here, 
but it is used in two other passages, critical passages, that relate to this whole concept of choice and predestination. The first is 1 Peter 1-2. And in the Greek, the word elect is really in verse 1, but in the way it's translated, so it flows better and makes better sense in English, it has elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now, what's important about that phrase, and we'll look at this verse several times, is it makes the ultimate prior focus on God's foreknowledge. Now, that's why there's a lot of debate about that, but if you listen carefully to Calvinistic theologians, they put God's sovereignty ahead of his foreknowledge. And they will say, and I'll read a couple of quotes for you, they will say that foreknowledge basically means uh, predestination. But that's not what the word means. Romans 8.29 gives us this order of events, for whom he foreknew, that is God, for whom he foreknew, knew, that is to know something ahead of time that relates to his omniscience. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Notice it doesn't say he predestined to salvation. Now that's really important to think about this. He, it never says they predestined to salvation, but pre, the destiny is those who be saved have a, God has a plan, and his plan is to conform us to the image of Christ. Those who are in him have a, a destiny in God's mind to conform them to the image of Christ, uh, the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn of, of many, many brethren. So what we will learn is that these key terms uh, which are used in Scripture are redefined within this deterministic sense that is popular among Calvinists. Now, some of you may not know who John Calvin was. You may not know about Calvinism, and so I'll go over that just a, a little bit. Uh, so that you have that historical perspective. But actually, the, 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 this whole debate did not begin with Calvin and Calvinists or uh, Arminians. That occurred in the uh, late 1500s and early 1600s. But it is a mirror of a debate that occurred much, much earlier in the 5th uh, fifth, fifth century A.D., what we see here, though, is something that is, as I pointed out earlier, somewhat complex for many people to understand, and, and it is. I mean, I've worked through this for many years, so I'm trying to boil this down and make it, uh, make it, uh, make it simple for us, but we live in a world today where people think everything needs to be able to be expressed in a soundbite. And what I have said for years is that things that really matter cannot be expressed in a soundbite. They have to be developed and thought through, and they relate to various uh, various other things. So let me try to put this a little bit in the context of what is going on in Ephesians. Ephesians is this epistle which, more than any other of Paul's epistles, sets forth the, the glories and the plan of God for the purpose of the church. We see this 
in terms of how they are identified. Now, there are other epistles who do this, but at the beginning in this epistle, he addresses the saints who are in Christ, the sanctified ones, those who are set apart. That is part of our identity. Then as we get into these opening verses, we discover that that identity expands to those who are in him. And he Basically, what Paul does is to teach about what has happened in this church age in terms of our salvation and the barrier that's broken down between Jew and Gentile and between humanity and God. That takes us through chapter 2. And the implications of that in the church, this unique body of Christ, is we get into chapter 3. As we've seen in our introduction, as we go through chapter 4 and 5, he starts unpacking what that means in terms of how we live and how we walk. But then when you get to the end, and remember, it's always important to start with the end in mind. The end is he ties this together in terms of this spiritual warfare, tying it together in terms of the satanic rebellion against God and how we fit within all of that. So he starts by talking about who we are in Christ, but he ends by focusing us on the fact that we are all engaged in this spiritual warfare as the body of Christ, wherein we are to wear the armor of God and fight in the strength of his might. But that comes on the basis of understanding who we are and how we walk. That's the logical structure of of the epistle. So as believers in Christ, in the body of Christ, were to wear his armor, walk and live and fight in the strength of his might, and our entire battle for the spiritual life is based on our new identity and position in Christ. So we have to understand that it's unique, it's distinct of all history. Ephesians teaches us that we are incorporated into Christ as this new and unique entity, uh, this new organism called the church by God's grace. By the grace of God, we're in Christ. In the opening, we have forgiveness, the redemption by his blood, and then we're further seated forever by the Holy Spirit. Now, that teaches us that no matter how difficult the battle gets, There's always forgiveness, and we can't lose our salvation. That's inherent within a lot of these discussions because the usually this is presented as you're either A or B. You're either an Augustinian or a Pelagian. Pelagius, as I'll talk about this in a minute, Pelagius taught that you could lose your salvation. Arminianism, which was the opponent to Calvinism, taught that you could lose your salvation. So these ideas of our security are critical for understanding this because we're in uh, the plan of God. So we have this redemption. We're sealed by the Spirit. And because we're in Him, we have boldness and confidence to approach God in prayer. Since Christ is raised from the dead and seated at a position of, uh, at the right hand of God the Father, a position of privilege, we are, at the instant of our salvation, we are raised with Him and seated with Him. And I don't think we even come close to appreciating the significance of that for our life today, to appropriate that as as part of our eternal blessing in Christ. We are seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. 
God has chosen us for this purpose, that it is those in Christ. He chose the corporate body to be in him and to be seated with Christ so that we have that position as because he is the choice one. We are choice because we are in him. And that word, as I've taught before many times, isn't chosen. Jesus wasn't the chosen one. He's not selected of a group of many. He is choice. He is excellent because of his perfect righteousness. And when we enter into Christ and we receive his righteousness, we become choice also, not chosen, choice. We are excellent because of that quality of possessing Christ's righteousness. Jesus is referred to in Luke 23, 35 as the Christ. It's translated the chosen of God, but these are Jews. They don't understand it that way. They're calling these the Messiah. If the Messiah isn't chosen, he's choice. And that fits, as we'll see with Old Testament usage. So as such, as those who are in Christ, we have a specific destiny as the body of Christ. And this destiny is not salvation, but our future role to rule and reign with Christ in eternity. This is part of and related to God's omniscience. Now, here's how omniscience plays into this. For those who are on the Calvinist side, omniscience, the God's omniscience, he only knows what will happen. And he only knows what will happen because he's already determined what will happen. So God's sovereignty determines what will happen, and then his omniscience knows it. So his omniscience becomes subordinate to his sovereignty. And that'll, you know, twist your brain around a little bit as you try to think about that. But what omniscience means is that God knows all of the knowable, not just what he has determined. Now, what that means is God knows the what-ifs. We play what-if history every now and then, thinking about, well, what if we had lost, the Allies had lost World War II? What if Hitler had defeated England? What would have happened then? We talk about those what ifs. God knows. And we have evidence in Scripture that God talks about this. Jesus said that if the signs that were done in Capernaum and Bethsaida had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. That tells us that God knows what would happen in different conditions under different scenarios. He doesn't just know what he has determined. He knows what would happen if his creatures made alternate decisions. The terminology for that is contingent. But God is still in control so that he is not subject to the vagaries of human choice. Whether you choose to go to... Uh, Texas A&M or University of Oklahoma or NYU is not going to change the plan of God. He's able to achieve his plan and purpose, uh, whatever you choose. God is going to bring about God's plan and purpose for mankind was to do what? He was to rule over the planet. He is to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, as the image and representation of God. What happened? Adam exercised free choice. He chose to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That has a lot of bad consequences. But what's the end game? Jesus Christ, as the true God-man, as a man, 
will rule over humanity and he will rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And in the end game, the human race as as fulfilled in the body of Christ and the body of Old Testament saints will rule and reign in eternity. We will fulfill the purpose for man. So that God's God's plan and purpose is not uh, at the expense of human loss, at the expense of human volition. Now, let's understand a little bit about the history of this because we have to use some terms that are that are important. In the history of Christianity, this question of free will versus the sovereignty of God has always played a part. But in the very early centuries in the from the time of the completion of the new testament through the through approximately uh 400 uh AD it was not difficult foreknowledge was understood to mean prescience that god knew things ahead of time that is how that word is used in the scripture god knew what would happen ahead of time what happens it, uh, then is you get a development that occurs in the uh, in the early fifth century by a theologian by the name of Augustine. Protestants call him Augustine. Catholics call him Augustine. I went to a Catholic school for a while, so I call him Augustine. Um, Augustine has an interesting background. He is revered by many Protestants. I never have understood that. I have always had trouble with him. And I've never, never understood why he is so revered. And he is second only to Augustine in these, uh, to Calvin in these areas. But he had a rough background. His mother was a Christian, but he was a reprobate. And he went through various different religious beliefs before he became a convert to Christianity. Just before he became a Christian for 10 years, he was a part of what some might call a sect called Manichaeism, which was an ancient Persian religion, somewhat similar to Zoroastrianism, that held to a form of dualism. Dualism means that evil is eternal and good is eternal. So he believed in that. But the other part of Manichaeism was determinism that ultimately everything is determined uh, by this impersonal fate ultimately, and so everything that happens has been decreed, determined by uh, some impersonal uh, entity. When he converted to Christ, because the influence of Manichaeism was heavy throughout a lot of Christianity in North Africa and, and the Middle East, he wrote a book called On Free Will, and if you read that in isolation, you will think there's a lot of good stuff there emphasizing free will. But you have to understand that's only within one context, and this is a complex man who has a rich intellectual background. And a few years after he wrote that, there is a, a, a teacher in, in England called Pelagius. And Pelagius comes along, and he denies total depravity. He denies the corruption of sin. He says Adam became corrupt when he chose to sin, but it only affected Adam. It didn't affect his descendants. So every human being is born neutral as Adam was created. They have totally unhindered free will. As a result of that, they can choose uh, to follow God and to believe the gospel, or they can later choose to reject it and lose their salvation. 
So that was part. Well, uh, Augustine saw this as complete heresy because sin affected, and he was right at this point, sin affects every aspect of our of our nature. It affects our will. We are not neutral as Adam was neutral, but that doesn't mean we don't make uh, decisions that are that affect, truly change and affect things. That we do not make free decisions in relationship to uh, to the gospel. And so he had a major battle with Pelagius. They came, had a couple of, of uh, con, uh, counts, church councils, and Pelagius was determined to be a heretic. But in the process of this, Augustine developed a doctrine called double predestination. And in double predestination, God determines and selects who will be saved, and he selects who will be eternally condemned. It's not has nothing whatsoever to do with their choice. Their choice reflects God's predetermined plan. That shows that he still is influenced presuppositionally by the determinism he believed uh, from Manichaeism. There were a number of church councils that went back and forth over the next several hundred years, and his position was modified to what became known as semi-Augustinianism. I'm not going to take you through all of that. But what's important is that when the Protestant Reformation broke out, the first reformer was Martin Luther. Martin Luther is a German. He's Roman Catholic through and through to begin with, and he is a monk, and he is a monk in the order of St. Augustine. He is, he has imbibed deeply of the determinism of Augustine. And when he writes his book, The Bondage of the Will, there is no such thing as any kind of volition or free will. Everything is predetermined by God. Then you have a French lawyer by the name of Jean Calvin or John Calvin. And Calvin writes that he, by the time he came to a full understanding of the gospel, he was completely and totally influenced by Augustine. So that Augustine's really confused theology in a lot of places and his determinism influences the two major breakthrough theologians of the Protestant Reformation. Now, Calvin is not as Calvinistic as, and deterministic as his followers were, but by the end of the 1500s, there's beginning to be this, this development by his followers that make his, his beliefs more deterministic. And so there is a Dutch theologian by the name of Jacob Arminius who teaches that there's no such thing as double predestination and that God does not determine who will be saved and who will not be saved. That's a matter of choice. He also taught that you could lose your salvation and some other things. And so his followers are being going to be brought up on heresy charges, and they are going to set forth their beliefs in terms of five points. So the Calvinists answer in terms of five points. That becomes the famous five points of Calvinism. Tulip is the word that we use. This is, uh, we have a floral imagery for this theology. 
Okay, so TULIP is the Calvinist view, total inability, not t- total depravity. We all believe in total depravity. The man is corrupt in every area of his being. But total inability means that you're not able to even express positive volition. You have no, you'll never on your own express any interest or desire in God truly. The U stands for unconditional election, that God chooses you without any conditions stated. And, and just because the text doesn't tell us what any conditions might be doesn't mean there aren't conditions. The conditions are what's determined by God's, or what's known by God's foreknowledge. The L stands for limited atonement, that Jesus died only for the, those who were unconditionally elect. The I stands for irresistible grace, that when God starts to open your eyes to the truth, you can't resist it. And the P stands for perseverance of the saints, which in its worst form is that if you are truly saved, you will persevere and grow. But if you don't persevere and grow and don't have the fruit of the Spirit, then you weren't really saved. That we call lordship salvation today. So that gives you a brief summary of that. The other side of it is the the Arminian view is what we call daisy theology. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. We're never sure of our salvation. On any given day, we can commit some unpardonable sin and lose our salvation, but we might get it back. So those become the two options. And for many people, they are so mired in those two views that they don't, can't even think that there maybe is a different way that is taught in the Scripture. And so this is what we're going to be going through is thinking through what does the Scripture say. And what we see here in our verse, I will give you the uh, bottom line here, is that he appointed us in him, us in him. He appointed those in Christ. It's not talking about how we get there. It's talking about the, the, the purpose that God has for the body of Christ. He chose us in him, he, or he appointed us in him for a purpose. We're commissioned for a purpose. And he did this before the foundation of the world because in his omniscience he had the whole plan. He always knew the plan. He never learned it. It was never uh, not in his thinking. In the omniscience of God, God knows everything that can possibly happen, not just everything that will happen. He knows what will happen, what could possibly happen, and he always knew it instantaneously, so he never learns anything new, and he never forgets anything. He always has known everything there is to know, and And so from eternity past, this has been the focal point of his plan in the church age. And the purpose is that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. That these phrases have to be understood. We have, in the history of Christianity, because we didn't have computers, it was hard enough just to do, compile lists of words, how, you know, you look up the word love. In a concordance, you get a whole list of every place the word love is used. But there are a lot of times when love is used in a phrase. Well, it's difficult enough to just catalog all the uses of the single word, but to catalog phrases is a different thing. What we find, as we saw in Matthew, is that when we have a phrase like kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven, that when we have a phrase, the meaning of the phrase is greater than the sum of its parts. We have to study phrases and how they're used and look at phrases because it's not just saying he chose, period. 
It's not just chose, he chose us, period. It's he chose us in him. It's a corporate concept, not an individual concept. And so there's a purpose that we're appointed to, and that is to be holy and without blame before him in, in love. Having, because he predestined us, this is logical uh, uh, rationale for the basis for this, is that he's, again, there's a destiny for us and our role as adoption as sons to Jesus Christ himself. And all of this comes down to understanding this glorious reality that is ours as members of the body of Christ. We're unique. We're distinct. What God has done for us and elevating us in Christ is beyond anything that we can imagine. And the glorious assets or blessings that God has given us, we usually ignore because we're not taught about them, but they are the tools, the basis, the means by which we can exploit what God has done and and glorify God in ways that have never been possible. And so next week, because it's Christmas, we'll have a special uh, Christmas service next Sunday morning, and the focus will be on celebrating the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then when we come back, uh, the next two Sundays before I go to Kiev, we will focus on developing out these words and under, understanding this a little more uh, precisely to answer the question. I get questions on this uh, quite frequently, people. What, what, how do you explain this? What is the difference? How, do you have any series that you've taught on Calvinism and Arminianism? How do we understand this? And so we'll take a little time. I don't want to drill down into the into the uh, nano-theology of everything, but want to make sure that we have a good understanding of why we believe what we believe on these verses with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we can uh, study, learn, that we can have our thinking shaped because we're, we're talking significant issues related to your ultimate plan. It involves understanding your essence, your attributes of sovereignty, of justice, of omniscience. It involves understanding your your plan, your purpose, especially as it relates to our unique position as church-age believers and how... We are to think in terms of our new identity in Christ. Father, challenge us in these areas that we can think that you will open up our minds to, to press through the issues and not be, feel overwhelmed because, uh, they have been complicated by too much human viewpoint thinking and the issues are really rather simple. Father, we also pray for those who are here, those who may be listening online, that if there's anyone who listens to this and wants to truly know, how am I saved? The issue is simple. It involves faith. Faith is just trust. It's believing something to be true, believing that Jesus died in our place. He paid the penalty in full. And because he paid the penalty, we have eternal life. Our, our life is full and rich as a free gift, and it is everlasting. Father, we pray that you would help us think through these things and that 
we might realize that we should live at a much higher level to glorify you in all that we say and do and think. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.